So we were, uh, when we were last in America, I guess we were there, it's probably a year and a half ago, maybe two years, uh, we were in America during COVID, and I had to have a medical procedure done. And part of this medical procedure was I had to be put to sleep. Um, and I, I'll be honest with you, I was quite anxious about that. I was more anxious about staying awake for it. So uh, I was anxious either way. And I was actually a bit just scared, to be fair. Like, you're, you're completely putting your life in someone else's hands. Like, they're going to put you to sleep and do things to your body, and you hope they know what they're doing. And, like, you don't get to see their grades they made in medical school. Like, you're just completely trusting. And so um, in, in preparation for this procedure, um, they uh, they sent me some emails with some YouTube videos, which was not helpful, um, watching YouTube videos of other people going through it. And, uh, and there was a pamphlet. I read the pamphlet. I watched the videos. And none of it really, to be fair, put my mind at ease about this procedure being put to sleep until I spoke to family members and friends who had had the same procedure. And I was speaking um, particularly to my sister, and she's like, oh, no, no, I had it, and, uh, and this is exactly what's going to happen. This is what they're going to do, and this is what it's going to feel like, and you're going to be okay. And she just walked me through it, and then I had other folks who I spoke to who I loved and who I trusted, and I know they loved me, and they explained it to me, and it just it put my mind and heart at ease. There was something comforting in knowing that they had already been through it, had come out the other side, and everything was going to be all right. And, and as we continue our study through the book of 1 Peter, and if you remember, this is all about suffering. This is in the context of the emperor Nero, uh, the Roman emperor who has burned Rome to the ground. He's blamed the Christians. Uh, Christian persecution has spread throughout, really, the world, the known world at that time. And, and as, as we continue to look at this letter that Peter is writing to Christians, on, on how they are to persevere and how they are to act in the midst of a culture uh, that's antagonistic to the gospel and to believers, we're going to see in our passage this morning um, that, that Jesus is going to be our example. Peter is going to say, listen, Jesus has already been through what you're going through. Jesus has already done what you're doing, and, and it, it's okay. This is what's happened. And, and so uh, we can read about it, we can do those things, but stay with me, stay with me, because Jesus is lifted up as our example. And, and Peter is going to say, take comfort, right? Take comfort in knowing that you have a king who has already suffered as you are now suffering. And, and, and we take we take delight in that, and we take strength in that, all right? So um, let, let me pray, and then and then um, we're going to look at a lot of Scripture, and I just have this sense, even this morning, it is like the enemy doesn't want us to hear the Word, because uh, faith comes by hearing, and hearing by the Word of God. Isaiah says that, that when he sends his Word out, it always produces in us what he sets it out to do. And so I just want to pray that any distractions, anything that might want to draw our attention away from, from the Word, that, that yeah, so Lord, we want to come. And God, we just, man, your Word is alive. Jesus, we've already sung your praises, and we've seen videos reminding us of who you are and what you've done. And Lord, now you have given us this book, 
And we cannot understand it without you, Holy Spirit. We can't be changed without you. And Lord, we know that the enemy would seek to use anything to distract my heart, my mind away from your word because faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word. And Lord, you would desire to encourage us, to challenge us, to equip us today. And so, Lord, we desperately need you, Holy Spirit, to speak to us. We're not smart enough. We're not clever enough to understand your word. And so, Holy Spirit, would you uh, be the spirit of truth that Jesus sent you to be? And Holy Spirit, would you now speak truth to our hearts? Lord, if we've come in discouraged, may we find encouragement in your word. If we've come in fearful, may we find faith in your word. Lord, if, if, if we've come in and just a season of doubt, Lord, would you do a work? And, and persecution is real. It is happening now. And Jesus, we pray that you would take your word and encourage us, but embolden us, Jesus, to follow the example that you've set before us. And so we pray now that you would open our minds and give us understanding and soften our hearts and change us by your word, Holy Spirit. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. And so Peter, uh, we're going to look at 1 Peter chapter 3, beginning in verse 18. Uh, 1 Peter chapter 3, beginning in verse 18. And, and, and Jesus has already been through the suffering that the believers are now going through. Kind of like my sister. She went through the procedure before I did. And, and she was able to encourage me. Well, we find encouragement that we have a Savior King who has already suffered on our behalf. And so 1 Peter 3 Beginning in verse 18, and Peter writes this to the church. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous. Why? Well, to bring you to God. For Jesus was put to death in the body, but made alive in the spirit. And after being made alive, he went and made proclamation to the imprisoned spirits. To those who were disobedient long ago, when God waited patiently in the days of Noah while the ark was being built, in it only a few people, eight in all, were saved through water. And this water symbolizes baptism that now saves you also. Now, not the removal of dirt from the body, but the pledge of a clear conscience toward God. It saves you by the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and is at God's right hand with angels, authorities, and powers in submission to him. Therefore, or because of this, since Christ suffered in his body, arm yourselves also with the same attitude, because whoever suffers in the body is done with sin. And as a result, they do not live the rest of their earthly lives for human desires, but rather for the will of God. For you have spent enough time in the past doing what pagans choose to do, living in debauchery, lust, drunkenness, orgies, carousing, and detestable idolatry. Now they are surprised that you do not join them in their reckless wild living, and they heap abuse on you. But they will have to give an account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. For this, this is the reason the gospel was preached even to those who are now dead, so that they might be judged according to human standards in regard to the body, but live according to God in regard to the Spirit. 
Peter here is pointing us to Jesus. Jesus as the example. We take comfort and encouragement in him. And we, and we see that he's going to make a comparison uh, to the suffering of believers and the suffering of Jesus. And so we're just going to see three simple truths out of the word. And then we're going to just see some scripture. And so as you take notes, you can just write the scripture references down uh, that kind of show us uh, the truth this morning. Number one, we see this. Like the suffering of Jesus, Christian suffering is part of God's redemptive plan. Like the suffering of Jesus... Christian suffering is part of God's redemptive plan. Uh, We've already seen this verse this morning where Peter says this, For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous. And why did he do that? What does that last bit say? To bring you to God. Uh, The suffering of Jesus uh, was part of a bigger plan. And that plan was that that humanity might be saved. And so he says he suffered uh, the righteous for the unrighteous. That video mentioned that, didn't he? That Jesus didn't suffer for his sins. Jesus had no sins. But Jesus suffered for the sins of the world, right? That we might be brought to God. And so don't miss this. Uh, The suffering of Jesus was part of a bigger plan. Yeah? Yeah. And so uh, Paul says it this way in, uh, in 2 Corinthians. Paul says, God made him, Jesus, who had no sin, to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. I, I think, in my humble opinion, it's one of the most spectacular verses in the entire Bible. This, this divine exchange that God made him who had no sin, right, to be sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God. That is absolutely amazing. I mean, it, it, is, it is someone who's never had a parking ticket going and changing places with a serial killer so the serial killer gets out of prison. I mean, it's, it's this ludicrous thought, like this person who's completely innocent, who then goes and pays the price, pays the penalty for someone who is completely guilty. He says, listen, Jesus had no sin, but, but look what Paul says. He actually became sin. He didn't simply take our sin. He, he, he became our sin that we might become the righteousness of God. And so on the cross, uh, when, when the Father looked at Jesus, he saw our sin. And now when the Father looks at us, he sees the righteousness of Jesus. That is spectacular. And so uh, the suffering of Jesus, remember what the scripture says. Jesus says, no one takes my life from me, but I willingly lay down my life. No one took him. Do you remember in the gospel of John when Jesus is in the garden of Gethsemane? Yeah. And remember the soldiers come to arrest Jesus. And one of the soldiers says, are you Jesus? And John says that Jesus simply says, I am And when Jesus says it, it says that all the soldiers fell to the ground as dead men. When Jesus just said, I am, remember, that's that's how God introduced himself to Moses at the burning bush. And it's like Jesus, just for this, this snap of a second, just reveals who he really is, and it knocks the soldiers to the ground. And I always thought that meant Jesus had to stand around and wait for them to get up to arrest him. Like, I would have been gone, yeah? 
Like, I'd have been, come on, boys, let's go, right? Jesus has to wait around for these guys to get up. That's how powerful Jesus is, and yet he willingly laid down his life so that we might become the righteousness of God. And so suffering, suffering was part of God's redemptive plan for Jesus. And now we're going to see this, that suffering is part of God's redemptive plan for you and I. All right, so this is how it connects to us. So uh, Paul writes this to Timothy, and this about this is about as clear as you can get it. He says, "Yes, and everyone who wants to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution." I mean, that, that, that's about as plain as you can make it. it. It is a promise. It is a statement of fact. Yes. And everyone who wants to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. Uh, I I don't know if it was ever a a thing here in the UK. Uh, I know in the US, maybe some churches still do it, but uh, a time at Billy Graham Crusades and and Sunday services where uh, after the sermon, the pastor might invite people to follow Jesus, to, to give their lives to Jesus. And it would be very common to say, listen, if, if you want to, to give your life to Jesus and go to heaven and follow him, raise your hand or stand up or come forward. And, and people would often and still do do that. But I wonder if sometimes we leave this bit out. I wonder if we said if, if you were willing to follow Jesus and lose your friends and maybe lose your job and be made fun of and be misunderstood and be persecuted and and uh, laughed at, raise your hand, I wonder if the numbers might decrease. Because this is exactly what the Bible says we're signing up for. So yes, everyone, no, no exceptions, who wants to live a godly life in Christ Jesus, you will suffer persecution. So here's then the question, why? Like, God, why does that kind of have to be part of the deal? That's like having to eat your vegetables before getting the cake. You know what I mean? Like, Lord, why, why does it work that way? Why do I need to suffer and, uh, and he's, he's going to give us a couple of reasons. Uh, one, one reason Paul will give us is this in Romans. Uh, he writes this. He says, not only so, but look at this. We also glory in our sufferings because we know that suffering produces perseverance. Perseverance, character, and character, hope. And hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured out into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. Paul says uh, persecution is promised to us because persecution, uh, it, it, it creates growth in my life in ways that nothing else can do. Uh, I, I don't know if you're like me, but when things are hard, do you pray a little bit more? Uh, when things are challenging, do you hold on to Jesus just a little bit more? There's something that persecution does in my life. It is a soil in which things can grow in my life that no other soil produces. The soil of blessing and the soil of good times will not produce in my life this perseverance and character and hope. And so it's part of God's redemptive plan for us that God could create in us and make us into men and women of character. He says it requires perseverance. Um, I've, uh, um, I've occasionally over the years had small stints at going to the gym. Um, I just realized with a body like this, you just don't need it. Amen? Yeah, you liars. And so um, you go to the gym. If you haven't been in a long time and you're lifting weights and stuff, how does it feel the next day? 
like you're in a car crash, right? Like everything in you is hurting. And so I remember this was years and years ago. My sister had a boyfriend who worked at, at the gym, and he was all buff and strong and cool. And, and so I remember asking him, I was like, man, I'm just like sore everywhere. What's going on? And so he goes into this whole like, um, you know, all of this stuff about biology and how it works. And, and so he, he explained it this way, and I looked it up later, and he was telling the truth. He, he said that essentially when you lift weights, you create microscopic tears in your muscle. Yeah, you, you literally do a wee bit of damage to your muscles and then your muscle heals and then it gets damaged and it heals and it gets damaged and it heals. And this process of damage and healing is what strengthens the muscle. And that's why you feel sore after you work out. That's why you rest. You do your arms one day, legs next day, and you rest. That healing takes place. And this process is what builds strength. And so we might say this, I had a football coach who used to say, no pain, no gain, right? Now, here's the reality. I'll just give you a real personal example. I want so bad to learn how to be patient, but I don't want to wait. Are you with me? Like, how do you learn patience? Well, if I say, Lord, help me to learn how to be patient, what's God have to do? He's got to put me in situations where I have to wait. Like, Lord, help me, help me to be compassionate towards people. Lord, help me to be understanding towards people. Then he might have to put people in my life that are hard to understand, right? Lord, Lord, help me to be gracious to people that he might have to put people in my life that annoy me. Are you with me? Right? Now watch this. If I want, if I want to develop into the character of Jesus, I've got to be willing to suffer. It's part of God's redemptive plan. Uh, we also know this. That suffering is not only for our sake, but it's for the sake of those around us. It's not only for our sake, but it's for the sake of those around us. And so uh, a famous example would be the life of Joseph. If you'll remember when Joseph, remember he had the technicolor dream coat. And, uh, and when he was a boy, all his brothers were jealous of him. And so you remember they have this plan to kill him. At the last minute, they change their mind. And so they throw him down into a well. They pull him out and they sell him into slavery right, into Egypt. Now, you have to appreciate this. He is sent to a foreign land where he doesn't speak the language, he doesn't know where he's at, and now he's a slave, right? Now, years go by. You know the story. Years, decades go by. Joseph, uh, because of the grace of God, becomes the second most powerful man in the world. Pharaoh's the most powerful man in the known world at the time. Joseph is now number two. And Joseph's brothers come to him in the midst of a famine And if you'll remember, they don't recognize him. They don't know who he is, but he recognizes them. And he has the power to instantly have them all killed, have them all executed. And this is what, this is what Moses records for us in Genesis chapter 50. This is when Joseph's brothers are reunited with him. And this is what Joseph says to them. He reveals to them, it's me, your brother. You sold me into slavery. Then he says this, but as for you, you meant evil against me. But God meant it for good in order to bring about, as it is this day, to save many people alive. Now, therefore, do not be afraid. I will provide for you and your little ones. And Joseph comforted them and spoke kindly to them. How amazing. Joseph says, you you plan to murder me. You sold me into slavery. You lied to our dad. You, You made my life a living hell. And you meant it for evil, but God meant it for good. 
God used my suffering to bring salvation to my family and to my people. And the Jewish people come to Egypt to live and they survive the global famine because of the suffering of Joseph. And here's what we have to remember. This idea of God's redemptive plan, it's not just about what God wants to do in me. It's about what God wants to do through me. I'm currently reading Pilgrim's Progress. I've, I've never read it before. I'm absolutely loving it. And, and I've, I've just read the bit, if you've ever read it, where Christian and faithful have went into Vanity Fair. And it's just, it just represents the world and all the wickedness of the world. And, and faithful is, uh, is martyred. He's, they're, they're beaten and they suffer and he's killed. And now Christian leaves and he meets someone else on the way, on the way to heaven. And his name is Hopeful. And he begins to talk to Hopeful and he says, yeah, are you on the way to, to, to the celestial kingdom? And Hopeful says, yes. And Christian says, well, how have you become a follower of Jesus? And he says, he says, actually, I'm a citizen of Vanity Fair. And I saw you and Faithful beaten. And I saw Faithful killed for his faith. And because of his suffering, I have decided to follow Jesus. He says, and in fact, many people in the city are on the way behind us because of the suffering that you've been through. See, suffering is not only about what God wants to do in you. He wants to develop character. God wants to do some things through you to reach out to those around us. Man, there's something about seeing people who have something worth dying for. I mean, everyone has something worth living for, but very few people have something worth dying for. And so, uh, like the suffering of Jesus, Christian suffering is part of God's redemptive plan. Secondly, we see this, that like the suffering of Jesus, that Christian suffering results in ultimate victory. Christian suffering results in ultimate victory. Uh, This is, so verses 19 through 22 are, are some of the most difficult verses in all the Bible. And so there are loads of different opinions on what it could mean, and so I'll leave you to it to, to go and research that. I'm going to give you what I think it is, and, um, and so for today, we're going to pretend like I'm the one who knows what they're talking about. Amen? Uh, that was weak. Okay, and, and, uh, but this, this would be kind of the more reformed evangelical view of what these scriptures mean, because they are deep and rich. So he says this, after being made alive, he, Jesus, went and made proclamation to the imprisoned spirits. And then, he, and then he kind of gets into this little subplot about Noah and the days of the flood and some things that were, that were going on. And, and so what, what is happening here? Um, well, we need to look at some other scriptures to maybe get a handle on um, a, a better idea. So uh, this would be, um, he says, uh, it saves you by the resurrection of Jesus Christ, right? He tells us that that were saved by the resurrection, who has gone into heaven and is God's right hand with angels, authorities, and powers in submission to him. And so uh, some scholars believe that what has happened is that somehow between the death and the resurrection of Jesus, that Jesus has went and proclaimed his victory to the spirit realm. All right? So let me say that again. You have Friday... Friday, Jesus dies on the cross, right? And then Sunday, Jesus is resurrected. The tomb is empty. And so the question is, what, what happens in that, uh, that, that in-between time? 
And, and the view that many hold, which I would hold, is that during this time, Jesus goes and proclaims his victory uh, to those who have been imprisoned uh, in Hades. And, and we're not talking about humans, but we're talking about angelic beings. So he references Noah. Um, so you stay right where you're at, but let me go for us to Genesis chapter 6. This is good stuff, so just, just, just buckle up and stay with me. So this is Genesis chapter 6, and this is a description of the world of Noah. And it says this. It says, uh, when, when human beings began to increase in number on the earth and daughters were born to them, the sons of God saw that the daughters of humans were beautiful, and they married uh, any of them they chose. Now, the question then becomes, who are these sons of God? Because they're not human. He points out that the women are human, but who are these sons of God? And, and, and it seems to be, most scholars would agree, that they're fallen angels. What we would think of as demons, fallen angels. And then the Lord said, My spirit will not contend with humans forever when he sees this happening. For they are mortal, and their days will be 120 years. When God sees this happening, his first response is, he then limits the life expectancy. It's very interesting. If you look now, it is very rare to see someone in modern day who lives beyond 120. It's Genesis chapter 6. He does that. And then it says, the Nephilim, these these fallen angels were on the earth in those days and also afterward when the sons of God went to the daughters of humans and had children by them and they were the heroes of old men renowned and the Lord saw how great the wickedness of the human race had become on the earth and listen at this this is how bad it was if you think it's bad today and every inclination of the thoughts of the human heart was only evil all the time. Listen at that. Every inclination, every thought of the human heart was evil all the time. From the time men and women woke up till the time they went to sleep, every intent of their heart was evil all the time. And we've seen a video about the impact of evil. And so listen at this. This is, we're still in Genesis 6. The Lord regretted that he had made human beings on the earth, and his heart was deeply troubled. So the Lord said, I will wipe from the face of the earth the human race I've created. But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. We know the rest of the story. Now, here's where we come back to this passage. That It appears that even the fallen angelic beings in that day were so wicked that there were some that God locked up. God went ahead and locked them up. And what we have now is Jesus has died and he goes into these demonic forces that have been locked up from the days of Noah. He proclaims and announces his victory. All right. And so uh, Paul describes it this way in Colossians chapter two. He says, when you were dead in your sins and in the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made you alive with Christ. And he forgave us all our sins, having canceled the charge of our legal indebtedness, which stood against us and condemned us. And he has taken it away, nailing it to the cross. And watch this. And having disarmed the powers and authorities, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross. 
Isn't that not amazing? Remember in Ephesians, Paul says, we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but what do we wrestle against? Do you remember in Ephesians? Powers and authorities in the spiritual realm. So this phrase, power and authorities, Paul uses to talk about the demonic forces that are in work today. And look what he says. He says, Jesus, nailing it to the cross, having disarmed the powers and authorities, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross. Jesus went and publicly announced through his death and resurrection, hell, where is your sting? Death has been defeated. It's all been defeated by the resurrection of Jesus. Amen. And so he says he publicly makes a spectacle. Publicly shames the devil and all his legions because of his death and resurrection. Can you imagine the party that probably took place in hell for a day and a half? Can you imagine? Like a day and a half party in hell because Jesus, the son of God, is dead. We did it. They're high-fiving, they're partying, they're celebrating the Son of God has been defeated. And then Sunday morning comes, and the stone is rolled away. Amen, church? The stone is rolled away, the women show up, and the angel says, Why do you seek the living among the dead? He is alive, and the party is over. And death has no authority over us. Sin has no authority over us. And because of Jesus Christ, look what he says there. He says, angels, authorities, powers, all are in submission to King Jesus. And one day, every tongue shall confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Every knee shall bow to the glory of God the Father. Now, if this was a Pentecostal church, somebody would be swinging on a chandelier. But I'm sweating too hard for y'all to look so bored. Because this is good stuff, church. This is Jesus. This is our Jesus. This is our King. And he said, I praise the Lord that our queen has reigned for 70 years. He will reign for eternity and all the forces of hell will be nothing more to him than a footstool. And the devil will be his lapdog because of his death and resurrection. Now, here's where it gets even better. As if that wasn't good enough. Now, how does this relate to us? So, like Jesus, how do we then receive the ultimate victory? Like, how's this connect to me? I've, I've got to go to work tomorrow. Like, this is exciting, but how does this connect to my life? Well, uh, look with me at Ephesians chapter 2. Ephesians chapter 2, uh, Paul writes this. Says, but, but because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ even when we were dead in transgressions, for it is by grace you have been saved. And watch this. And God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus in order that in the coming ages he might show the incomparable riches of his grace expressed in his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. How do we share in the victory? Look what he says. He says, God raised us up with Christ, and not only has he raised us up, he has seated us with him in the heavenly realms, that in the coming ages we become trophies of God's grace. Trophies of God's grace. He has raised us up and seated us in the heavenly realms. 
This was a couple years ago. John Spencer and I went to London for the Royal Air Force 100th anniversary, didn't we, John? We took the train to London, and we were there on the mile, and, uh, and we're waiting for the flyover. Like, all these planes are flying over. And, um, and so uh, we were close enough to Buckingham Palace that when the royal family came out on the balcony, like, I'm, I feel certain they were waving at John and I. Uh, I just felt like it was us, John. I'm, I'm, yeah, didn't you, mate? And, and so John and I are there, and we can see them, and I'm like, um, John, there's the royal family. He's like, oh, they're dumb. Yeah, it is the royal family. So we're looking at them the whole time, right, checking them out. But here's what they didn't do, and it hurt. They didn't invite us in, did they, John? I'm sure we would have loved a cucumber sandwich. I don't know what they eat on the balcony, but we, we, we ended up with a, a stale sausage from a vendor behind us, right? Like, we were not invited into the palace or up on the balcony, right? Jesus says, not only have I saved you, but just endure, just hold on. I know it's hard, but don't give up, because one day you will be seated with me in heaven for all eternity. We don't just get in the front door, we're seated with the king. Is that not amazing? We are seated with the king. And so Peter encourages the church and says, don't give up. Like, don't give up. I know it's hard. But one day, because of Jesus, you will have victory and you will be seated with him forever. Uh, Paul gives us another example of the ultimate victory we receive. Look at this in Romans 8.31. He says, for if God is for us, who can be against us? And who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall trouble or hardship or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? No, for in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither death nor height, nor anything else in all of creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus the Lord. That is ultimate victory. And don't miss this. So Paul, when he's writing to the Romans, Paul and Peter are both in Rome at the same time uh, under the same persecution. Paul, Paul's beheaded, right? He's martyred, and that's done by Nero. So Paul and Peter are both being persecuted. And so look at this, because maybe you've never made this connection in Roman. When he says, um, uh, when he says, he, he starts listing some of these things, right? And, and when he says there, he says, um, what, what, shall, what shall separate us? Trouble? Man, are the Christians experiencing trouble? Man, they're, they're, they're losing their land. They're losing their jobs. They're losing their homes. Hardship? Yeah. Persecution? Famine? Like, they, they, their farmland's being taken from them. They can't grow food. They're, there's no grocery store for them to go. Nakedness? I mean, the, 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 these, these aren't just like, this isn't hyperbole. These are real people that are having this done to them. Danger or even sword. Paul says, even in the midst of that, none of that can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. And He is encouraging the Roman church, just as Peter is encouraging the church. Don't give up. I know it's hard, but you will have ultimate victory. Uh, Lastly, we see this. Number three, that like the suffering of Jesus, Christians' suffering uh, involves a rejection of sin. Christian suffering involves a rejection 
of sin. Uh, He says this in verses 1 and 2 in chapter 4. He says, Therefore, since Christ suffered in his body, arm yourselves also with the same attitude, because whoever suffers in the body is done with sin. And as a result, they do not live the rest of their earthly lives for evil human desires, but rather for the will of God. And then he gives this list of these evil desires, doesn't he? He, he lists them out for us in chapter 4. And so he says, debauchery, lust, drunkenness, orgery, carousing, detestable idolatry. I mean, everything we see when we turn on our television now. He says, don't live for that. As a result, they do not live the rest of their earthly lives for evil human desires, but rather for the will of God. So as Christians were persecuted by Nero, they were often given the opportunity to renounce their faith. Almost always, history tells us, they're given the opportunity to renounce their faith, and certainly some did. But, but, but essentially, all you have to do is publicly renounce your faith, renounce Jesus, say, say you're not going to follow him anymore, and you can go. Imagine that choice. I think, I think for me, that would be, I hope that would be an easy choice, but man, what if it was one of my kids? What if they were saying, renounce your faith, or we, we torture your daughter, we rape your daughter? Renounce your faith, or we torture your son? See, It's not hyperbole. This happened. Peter is saying, oh man, just just hold on. Just hold on to Jesus. And and, and choose suffering. Choose, Choose the hard path for you will have the ultimate victory. But choose suffering. Choose suffering over sin. The, the sin of rejection of Jesus, the sin of the world. Uh, uh, one of the reasons, oddly enough, one of the reasons that the Romans hated the Christians is because the Christians were so different. They, they, they wouldn't participate in orgies, and they wouldn't participate in drunkenness, and they wouldn't go down to the temple and, and, and do all the things that were done, uh, the debauchery that was done with the temple prostitutes. Like Christians would not do that, and it's one of the reasons people hated them, because they wouldn't join in. How easy and tempting it must have been just to say, listen, just just join in in the fun and the persecution will stop. But Christians chose to to hold on. Um, uh, Hebrews says it uh, this way uh, about Jesus and how it's related to him and suffering. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to empathize with our weaknesses, but we have one who has been tempted in every way, just as we are, yet did not sin. Scripture says, Jesus was tempted in every way as a man, yet did not sin. Jesus chose, think about the Scriptures, and think about how often Jesus chose suffering over sin. Every time. Every time. All Jesus had to do was agree with the Pharisees, and they'd leave Him alone. All Jesus had to do was go along with the crowd, and they would leave Him alone. All Jesus had to do was work a miracle, and everybody will believe. All Jesus has had to do was have his own way. I mean, we, we know of his temptation in the wilderness and how, how the devil tempted Jesus, right? Just, 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 just compromise here, compromise there, and, and, and everyone will love you and everyone will be fine. I wonder how often we are tempted to compromise what we believe so that others might like us or approve of us. 
And the point is this. Jesus has been tempted in every way as we have, yet without sin. So he gets it. Like Jesus understands what temptation feels like, which is a good thing, right? Yet he also knows what it's like to have victory over sin. And so here's what you and I have to do. We have to be like Jesus. And through his strength and through his power, we have to choose suffering over sin. And this is exactly what Moses did. Uh, Hebrews will tell us this. Um, Hebrews says this. This is an amazing passage. By faith, Moses, when he had grown up, refused to be known as the son of Pharaoh's daughter. He chose instead to be mistreated along with the people of God rather than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. He regarded, man, this is so good. He regarded disgrace for the sake of Christ as of greater value than the treasures of Egypt, for he was looking ahead to his reward. What a great passage of Scripture. Uh, Moses, remember uh, that Pharaoh has given a decree that all the Hebrew babies, any boys, are to be killed? Remember? So you have the two Hebrew midwives who, who refuse to do that. They, uh, they're, they're, you know, helping to keep little baby boys alive. And remember that, that Moses' mom, they put Moses, baby Moses, in a basket, and they float him down the river. And who finds him? Do you remember? Pharaoh's daughter. Her dad is the most powerful man on the planet. And she finds this baby, right? And he now, for part of his life, is raised as an Egyptian, as an adopted part of the family of Pharaoh. And look what he says, By faith, when he had grown up, he refused to be known as the son of Pharaoh's daughter. He didn't go around saying, do you know who I am? Do you know who I am? He decided to lay that aside, and instead he chose to be mistreated along with the people of God. Like all he had to say was, you better not mistreat me. Do you know where I grew up. I grew up in the house of Pharaoh, right? He lays that aside. He chose to be mistreated. And then look at this. Uh, Rather than to enjoy the fleeting pleasure of sin, he regarded disgrace for the sake of Christ as of greater value than all the treasure of Egypt. Oh, Lord, would you give us a heart to like just, you know, Jesus talks about lay up your treasure in where? Heaven. Lord, may may we just value heavenly treasure more than we would value all the fleeting pleasures that this world has to offer. Uh, Like the suffering of Jesus, we reject sin and choose the hard path. Uh, June 6th, uh, 1944. It certainly be said one of the few days in the history of humanity that was world-changing. We know it as D-Day. It was the day that the Allies uh, sent troops uh, to the beaches of France, to Normandy, to begin the process, the long, arduous process of pushing the Nazis all the way back to Berlin. And some of us had family uh, who maybe were a part of that. And on the day, the first landings, I read once, I, I don't know if you've ever been, if you ever get a chance to go, please do. It's, it's a humbling place to visit. I remember reading while I was there at Utah Beach in the beaches of Normandy there in France. It said that for the first day, the life expectancy of a soldier was six minutes. 
that as soon as your boat pulled up and the ramp came down, six minutes was the average life you had left. And in this context, all of the generals, Canadian, British, and American, decided it would be best if they didn't come with the first assault, that if they led from behind, all but the exception of Teddy Roosevelt Jr., Uh, Teddy Roosevelt Jr., who was the son of uh, prior president Teddy Roosevelt. Uh, Teddy Roosevelt Jr. was a a brigadier general. And when he found out that he could not lead his men onto the beaches, he sent a letter of protest to Eisenhower. And this is what the letter said. Quote, Dear General Eisenhower, uh, The force and skill with which the first elements hit the beach and proceed may determine the ultimate success of the operation. It is considered that accurate information of the existing situation should be available for each succeeding element as it lands. You should have, when you get to shore, an overall picture in which you can place confidence. Now listen carefully. I believe I can contribute materially on all of the above by going ashore with my men. Furthermore, I personally know that both officers and men of these advanced units, and I believe it will steady their courage to know that I am with them. It will steady their courage to know that I am with them. His second letter to Eisenhower said, If I can't go with my men, I resign. So he was allowed to go. And this is a famous painting of Teddy Roosevelt landing on the beaches of Utah Beach. He has two distinctions. Distinction number one, he was the only general of any country to land on the beaches of Normandy. And secondly, he was the oldest man to land on the beaches of Normandy. He was 56 years old. And he said, I will be with my men for I will not call them to go and do what I'm not willing to go and do myself. One month later, he died in France. He's now buried there at Utah Beach. The beach is enormity. They're at the graveyard. He said, I will not ask my men to go and do what I will not go and do with them. Uh, we finish with this verse of Scripture. And it's back to Hebrews. It says this, Therefore, Since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles. Let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of our faith. For the joy set before him, he endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. And then look at this. Consider him, Jesus, who endured such opposition from sinners so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. We are called to suffer, but Jesus does not call us to do something that he is not willing to go and do himself. Jesus has led the way as our general. We are called to follow. As we continue in Peter, we'll see it It doesn't get any easier, but we have, in Christ Jesus, ultimate victory. Let me pray for us.
Lord Jesus, we love you. We praise you. We thank you for your word. And we thank you, Jesus, that you have not called us to do anything that you haven't already done. That as we face temptation, you have already been tempted. As we face being misunderstood, you, Jesus, have been misunderstood before us. As we, Jesus, face being mocked and ridiculed, Jesus, you were mocked and ridiculed before us. And Jesus, even this day, in places around the world where believers face the real threat of laying down their lives, Jesus, you have again went before us and done that very thing that you call us to do. Jesus, we thank you that in you we do have ultimate victory. And whatever people might say about us or think of us, nothing, nothing, nothing can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. Lord, we would be quick to confess that, Lord, our courage so easily falters. It's hard, Lord. It's hard to live in a culture where wrong is called right, where Foolishness is called wisdom. And Jesus, in this very uh, culture, you have called us to stand lovingly and humbly for the truth. And Lord, we know that we cannot do it without you, Jesus. And so we pray that we might daily be filled by your Holy Spirit, that you would give us courage where there is fear, that you would give us wisdom where we are lacking, and that Jesus, you might develop in us character, the character, Jesus, where others might see you in us. And Jesus, we pray for Oikos Church and, and really for all the churches across Birmingham, Lord, who, who uh, yeah, we, we just find ourselves more and more living in a culture where it's just not politically correct to believe some of the things your word teaches. Lord, would you help us to stand by your grace, help us to stand lovingly, humbly, and boldly, for your glory and for the good of this city and the good of your people, uh, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Thank you so much. Um,